Bookstew viewers and listeners. Welcome to my very first Bookstew bonus. Since I've been reading all these 10 best, 12 best, 20 best lists of books for 2021, I decided that I would ra rather than fight them, I'd join them. But my picks are called Bookstew's Bright Stars of 2021. And the recommendations I have for you are not your tip on your typical uh, best books list. They're a little more obscure, and that's why I'm hoping that you'll read them and then talk to me about them. Because if I'm the only one who reads it, there's no dialogue going on. So first, I'm going to mention a few books that are on the top of everybody's list. Oh, and I also wanted to say that some of these books were not published in 2021, so some of them are a bit older. These are the ones that you kind of have to read, and I'm not going to even give you a review because you've probably seen and read and heard a lot of them. O. William by Elizabeth Strout, The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which is a National Book Award winner, by Ibram X. Kendi, Heavy by Kesey Lehman, Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford, and Beautiful World, Where Are You by Sally Rooney. So those made a lot of 10 best lists for both 2021 and uh, years before. So now I'm going to present to you the 15 books that I wish you would read so I could talk to you about them. The first three books have to do with work environments. And these are all pretty much pre-pandemic. But um, since I retired, I've remained fascinated with people's lives at work. They just seem so different than their lives at home. So the first one is called The Very Nice Box by Eve Glitchman and Laura Blackett. So the first thing is, how do two people write a book together? I have no idea. Um, it's hard enough for one person to write it, no less kind of collate your ideas. But this uh, book is set in Brooklyn at a company called Stata, which is kind of like an Ikea-type comp Ikea company. And it's a mashup of work comedy, romance, and satire with a little smidge of suspense, and it's totally genius, like a combination of The Rosie Project and Then We Came to the End. The narrator, Ava, has survived a major trauma and terrible losses by regimenting her routine and by clinging to her lead designer job for her undear life. Stata's founder, who is a woodworker by trade, is retiring and leaving the company in the hands of Matt, who's a Wharton double major and a most obnoxious young dude bro. For some reason, though, the charming and handsome new boss seeks Ava out, and they fall in love. As the heartbreaking tragedy that shaped Ava's life is revealed, we see how her devotion to creating the company's new hot seller the aptly named Very Nice Box, joining other J. Peterman and Ikea-type products as the Peaceful Headphones, the Husky Camping Chair, and the Cozy Nesting Tables. And we see that her rigid routine is preventing her from regaining even a, a smidgen of happiness. Ava shares her angst with and asks for advice from the company's online chat therapist, yes, there is such a thing in this book, 
called Shrink, spelled S-H-R-N-K, who seems to know and understand her to a remarkable degree. When Matt's substantial flaws are revealed, Ava has to choose between his love and his quirks. Every character at Stata is cunningly described, as is the Brooklyn neighborhood where an Antifa-like group called the Vandals is attempting to prevent the construction of a blindingly new tall tower in order to make the ruinous gentrification cycle complete. This debut novel is a completely joyous, compelling literary event. And I have a quote. The quote is, she had all the warmth of disinfectant spray. The next book, in a kind of similar line, is called Several People Are Typing. It's by Calvin Kosulke. I was really amazed that this raging satire would be a Good Morning America Club book pick. It's slyly subversive and a hilarious take on Slack. If you haven't been to work in a few years, Slack is an online messaging application that's uh, used by a lot of people at work these days. So that may be incomprehensible to anyone over 24, but it works, the, con the conceit works, and I'm 69 and I could get it. Gerald, a PR marketing drone type, ends up becoming one with a Slack bot, that's a robot chat help assistance, when he tries to share a spreadsheet about which winter coat he should buy to a gents-only internal Slack group. If, you, if you've lost me there, you might want to go and get a snack for the rest of the review. But if you're still with me, we watch and laugh at poor Gerald as he reaches out to his coworkers for help but they're also powerless to rescue or retrieve him from whatever cloud he's in. The nicest one, Pradeep, ends up hauling Gerald's not really there body back to his home and caregiving for him while he's present in mind but not in body. Work balance, life imbalance alert. In the meantime, the company's progress in representing a client whose dog food, which is called Bjork, B-J-A-R-K, ha-ha, ends up being fatal to Pomeranian dogs. The entire premise is completely off-center and hilarious as the entire book consists of slack dialogue. And no one seems to be too surprised or upset that the impossible melding of man and machine has occurred. In fact, they're really more, much more interested in which winter coat he bought before he got disincorporated. This unique and memorable story would also be a beauty of a graphic novel or a movie. The third workbook is called We Are Watching Eliza Bright by A.E. Osworth. This remarkable novel of work life and Me Too slash Gamergate impact in a video game company is completely immersed in more internet dude bro culture and its terrible repercussions for women. Eliza Bright is a new developer at Fancy Dog Games, creators of the very popular multiplayer role-playing game Guardians of the Protectorate. Two other male coders decide to harass her by inserting breast references into her code. Ha ha ha, right? Eliza refuses to play along and reports them to her boss, whose only response is to send them to sensitivity training. 
Fed up when the harassment continues unabated, Eliza goes public with her charges and gets fired. When one of the men finds her personnel file and posts it to the internet, Eliza is doxxed, meaning that all her personal information is revealed, and she has to flee her home. In the meantime, the sexist, trolling Reddit 4chan universe has coalesced and now responds with death threats to her, and one of them seems determined to track Eliza down and kill her. The story is told in narration and text messages from everyone's point of view and remains suspe suspenseful until the very end. This is a stunning and wholly memorable first novel by a writer who also in real life teaches digital storytelling. And two quotes from We Are Watching Eliza Bright. From his apartment, he can see Manhattan in layers as if it's shedding petals and exposing a center only the luckiest pollinators would ever see. And Suzanne didn't volunteer at all. She was voluntold. So that's it for the workbooks. And then we're going to move on to a couple of mythical books. The first one is actually called Mythos. And it's by Stephen Fry, whose name may be familiar to you. He's a British comedian, and he used to perform with Hugh Laurie uh, as a duo called Fry and Laurie. That's Dr. House. Even those readers who are not enamored of Greek mythology will be captivated by Fry's recanting of beloved stories from Ovid and Homer, enhanced by his own irreverent asides and footnotes. His overview of the realms of gods, goddesses, minor deities, and their inter interactions with humans who are always at a disadvantage is entertaining enough but where he really shines is in the first ages of Titans and Giants, even before the birth of Zeus. Particularly touching is the legend of Prometheus, the giver of fire to humans, who defies Zeus and destroys their joyous friendship in the process. Fry points out time and time again where the gods made mistakes and also refused opportunity to show remorse and make reparations. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is a truly delightful collection from a storyteller whose warm-hearted, deep dive behind the standard retellings is unique and will be savored by any aficionado of the genre. And the next book is a novel, and the title is Olympus, Texas. Author is Stacy Swan. There's not a god in sight in this small Texas town, but there's plenty of hubris. A very large contingent of characters does not diminish the impact of difficult sibling and marital conflicts. We'll start with Patriarch Peter, father in his youth to twins Artie, who's a girl, and Arlo by his girlfriend Lee, and with his wife Jane, he's also father to Hap and March, who are both men, and to Thea, who's a girl. Got that? March has a temporary violence derangement syndrome that seems to kick in mostly when his brother Hap is around. Oh, and yeah, he did have a fling with Hap's wife, Vera. Arlo is a fairly successful singer, and his twin Artie manages his career until she falls in love with Ryan, who works for Hap. Ryan's family, formerly prominent in Olympus, had a string of financial setbacks and has been usurped by Peter, leaving bad blood that could doom Artie and Ryan's romance. On the surface, wife Jane has forgiven Peter for his infidelities, but her boiling, long-term resentful has a 
and resentment has a terrible impact on each of the children. And then, oops, a hunting accident. In the tradition of Edna Ferber and Larry McMurtry's Texas novels, this one sounds complicated. It is complicated, but it'll probably be the best damn family saga you'll read this year. The writing is glorious, upping the ante with every chapter as each character's inner compass, or lack thereof, is revealed and the reader's sympathies move fluidly towards a satisfying ending. Now we move on to a book about a book, and it is So We Read On, How the Great Gadsby Came to Be and Why It Endures by Maureen Corrigan. Of course, you're already a Gatsby fan if you choose to read this book, but the author's skills in revealing unknown facts are a revelation to me, despite the fact that I've li listened to her book reviews forever on NPR's Fresh Air program. She's a charming combination of a fangirl and an academic, and her analysis of her 100-plus reads of The Great Gatsby seems spot on. Corrigan's tracking down of source documents and readings of Fitzgerald's letters reveals his overwhelming desire to be critically and popularly acclaimed, which did not happen until after his death at age 44. The book is a brilliant balance between the real Fitzgerald and the characters Gadsby and the narrator Nick. And if she seems to conflate them at times, she's forgiven. There are remarkable insights into the language, structure, and characters, and Corrigan may yet convince you that this is the great American novel. I was introduced to this book by a Zoom program featuring, featuring the author via the Wilmington Memorial Library's community read of The Great Gadsby this past summer. And here's a quote from one of Fitzgerald's letters. The whole burden of this novel is the loss of those illusions that give such color to the world so that you don't care whether things are true or false as long as they partake of the magical glory. The next book is a memoir, and it is A Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows, a me memoir by Ai Weiwei, translated by Alan H. Barr. My own best friend is an artist, and when she showed me the draft of a memoir she'd started, I was outraged. What? You're an artist and a writer? That is not fair. My response to this memoir by Ai Weiwei is the same. We know of his talent as an artist and about his political struggles against the Chinese government, but he's also an incredibly skilled writer. As Ai Weiwei's own talent in architecture and in conceptual art become recognized, he's able to leave China and travel to the US and to Europe. But while he's enjoying his freedom from the constant observation and harassment, he always felt drawn back to China. Eventually, he was done in by his outspoken, rebellious posts on social media, and he was imprisoned, banned from the internet, and his participation in Chinese and international exhibits was curtailed. But he now lives freely in England. Ai Weiwei is a true anarchist, dedicated only to his own son and to his artistic spirit, and he, he's permanently contemptuous of any regime that represses the spirits of its citizens. His memoir is a powerful outcry against the rigidity of modern Chinese society. 
and now a history book. This is How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Out of all the outstanding anti-racism books I've read recently, this one is uniquely personal in that the writer brings the reader directly to those sites where slavery stood out like a vicious tumor. In each place, Jefferson's Monticello, the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, where no one holds weddings and the emphasis is on the lives of the formerly enslaved, Angola Prison in Louisiana, which was a plantation, the Blandford Cemetery of Virginia, which is a mass burial ground for the enslaved with no markers and no names, Galveston Island, Texas, where Juneteenth began, and Wall Street in New York City, which was a slave market site, and it was enslaved people that built the wall of Wall Street, and finally in Gory Island, Senegal, with its breathtaking open doorway to the sea, you've seen pictures of Barack Obama there, where Africans unwillingly departed from America. The author listens to the guides that are with him and digs for more truth about the lives lived in those places of horror. Smith himself is a perfect guide. His turmoil and tenseness comes through in each beautiful word, and this is a perfect book for all to gain deeper understanding of the dark American stain that does not fade. Here's a quote. History is the story of the past using all available facts, and nostalgia is a fantasy about the past using no facts, and somewhere in between is memory. Now the next four books are novels, which are my bread and butter, or my meat and potatoes, or actually my cannoli and coffee. The first one is We Run the Tides by Venda La Vida. Oh, the miseries of adolescence and mean girls, even in most affluent Seacliff, a beachside suburb of San Francisco. Eulaby, who's 14, is in thrall to the fabulous Maria Fabiolo, her gorgeous and powerful bestie and leader of a band of judgmental private school girls. Of course, there are big problems such as murders, suicides, kidnapping, and a near rape behind all those mansion doors. And Eulaby is a most keen observer, striving to stay sane when her posse exiles her due to a fabrication by Maria. The everyday adventures in this insular world are beautifully observed, as are the interactions with parents and teachers. The novel is as relevant to its time, which was the mid-1980s, as was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, A Wrinkle in Time, and The World of Henry Orient were to theirs and should be considered for immediate classic status. The next novel is Friends and Strangers by J. Courtney Sullivan. This novel of generational differences also draws on class conflict, widening the theme and making it an outstanding examination of women's choices and consequences. Author and mom Elizabeth leaves her beloved Brooklyn when her inventor, inventor husband receives a job offer at a college which is clearly Northampton, Amherst, UMass, in that area. She hires Smith College, which is not disguised but remains unnamed, senior Samantha as a part-time nanny, and the women become completely and overly on Elizabeth's part, entwined in each other's lives. This theme is highly popular of late, 
in books such as Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, Cobble Hill by Cecily Zeisgar, and The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo, just to name a few. But Sullivan does it one better by having two sets of parents as working class and only one pair is extremely wealthy. It's a bit long and Samantha's romance with a weedy Englishman grabs too many pages, but the writing is lovely and the plot is even more compelling than the characters themselves. And here's a quote. Elizabeth had never learned to argue without chipping off a piece of the other person. The next novel is Moth Smoke by Moshin Hamid. This debut novel is very similar to Hamid's second and even better novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, with another main character who makes stupid decisions, frequently acts in the heat of anger, and is afflicted by desire for unattainable women. But there's something about this writing that makes the reader feel that she is in every room that the character enters and can observe his swerves with great frustration. Here, Daru loses his temper and his bank position in Lahore, Pakistan, and his status suffers, especially as compared to his wealthy friends. You can see the train wreck coming and the deceptions Daru feeds himself and how he feels taken advantage of even as he lies and oppresses others. As unlikable as he can be, Hamid's massive skills make Daru completely compelling. And the last novel is called The Lost Shtetl by Max Gross. Shtetl is Yiddish for a village. Do you have to be Jewish to love this book? No. You just have to be the type of reader who enjoys a bit of historical magical realism. In this tale, the tiny insular Polish shtetl of Kreskal has been hidden in the deep woods beyond modern viewing and imagination, surviving world wars and undiscovered even by Nazi troops when Poland was overrun. When a contentious married couple divorces, which is very rare in this community, and then disappears, a baker's apprentice is recruited to venture into the outside world and track them down. Yankel hitches a ride with gypsies, the only outsiders who travel through the town, and is brought to Smolsky, the nearest small city. Here, Yankel makes the startling discovery of cars, trains, cell phones, televisions, internet, and planes, and lands into, in a psychiatric hospital, where he finds sympathetic staff members who help him make a gradual adjustment to the perils and pleasure of what for him is truly a new world. When he returns to Kreskel, he finds everything changed as the whole of Poland and the entire world has discovered the town's secret existence. This is a delightful adventure story filled with humor and pathos. And now a book of short stories with the best title of 2021. Today, A Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket by Hilma Wolitzer. These short stories, all originally published in the 1970s except for the last one, are true slices of domestic non-drama. There's literally no action because it's all submerged thoughts, the very same ones that you're relieved don't display on yours and everybody's foreheads. Some stories are linked, featuring the handsome husband Howard and his be beleaguered wife Polly, 
who stands in for the author, for you, and for every woman. Time crawls and then flies, a home is purchased, parents age and die, depression, insomnia, and adultery set in, children are born and leave, and Polly and the others are so perfectly expressed that it all seems revelatory and shiny and new. And here's a quote. Howard's father died, moving Howard up one generation and canceling forever his coming attractions of life. Distinguished one minute, extinguished the next. My last two books are actually books do favorites, and they are books by authors that I had on the show this year. The first one is called So We Can Glow, and it's by Lisa Cross-Smith in episode, books do episode 87. This short story collection is scented by all things Southern, butter wouldn't melt, bless your heart, and all things feminine and feminist. The women characters search out trouble sometimes and back away reluctantly other times, but they're always thinking, moving, and giving off heat and pheromones. They're in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, trying to figure out what they've been cheated out of and what they can gain by cheating. The men are backdrops, winsome shadows of obliviousness. The loyalty is all sisterhood powerful, until temptation snakes in, and hardly a character is on her best behavior. All of these stories, even the one that's a mere page and a half, leap from the book cover books with exuberance and grace, humor and wisdom. And my last recommendation is The Book of the Little Axe by Lauren Francis Sharma, who was on episode 96. This remarkable historical fiction moves sometimes confusedly until you settle into the dual times, places, and characters. The locales are Trinidad and the Crow Nation from the late 1790s to the 1830s. Rosa, a young, free Trinidadian black woman who helps her parents and siblings run a farm and a forge, is under threat from ongoing colonial power shifts from the Spanish to the British to the French and the ruler's fear of black rebellion in the Caribbean. Victor, a teenager living in a Crow settlement with his mom, his adopted father, the warrior Cut Nose, are all of mixed race, with none of the three having been born into the Crow tribe. Victor, although loving his Montana life, never feels fully accepted and has had none of the spiritual visions needed to obtain manhood in the tribe. Tribe. The bridge between these seemingly disparate worlds is a scout, Creedon Rampley, who moves between the American West and Trinidad. Once the reader gains their footing, the connections, conflicts, and outcomes in each locale are intense, violent, and thrilling. This is one of two books, the other one being Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, that I started reading again as soon as I finished it feeling compelled to slow down the second time and savor the skilled writing even more. This novel is a notable achievement. So viewers and listeners, hopefully that gives you enough to start your reading life of 2022 with. And please stay in touch with me and let me know if you enjoyed these books as much as I did. Happy New Year and have a good night. Mm -hmm.